Now then, let's take that word by word. You've got to be kidding. What's going on there? Revelation. What's going on there? And yet as we went through our New Testaments and came to that as the last book and we swept across it, maybe like all the other books, um, faster than we normally do and getting an overview, what is going on there? I want to take you back 18 years. It's almost this Sunday 18 years ago, but actually probably last Sunday 18 years ago. This Friday coming is uh, Freedom Day in South Africa, the day they celebrate the three days of the first democratic elections in 1994. Well, that's the 27th of April. On the 17th of April, a Sunday, I was in my home church at that point, Adelaide Road in Dublin, and Frank Seller had asked me to do the prayers of intercession. And Janice was just back from nine months in South Africa, where I'd been to visit her. And so these elections had kind of been things that we thought about when I was there, that I thought a lot about when we came back. And we were fascinated by this historical time. So I remember, vividly remember, walking to the front of the church that morning. And the scenario was that 10 days away from the elections, the elections might not have mattered, not because black and white hadn't agreed to the elections. The black and white had agreed to these elections, but the blacks hadn't agreed to these elections. The Encarta Party, Budalese, their leader, had not at this stage said that he would come into these democratic elections because of the negotiations not pleasing him. So basically on the Sunday I was praying, we had 10 days to go and all seemed hopeless. And I can remember walking forward saying, I can't really pray that Budalese is coming into these elections because he's really not. I should pray that Budalese would come into these elections, but he really isn't going to. I need to pray that, I can't, no I shouldn't. What should I say? How should I word it? That was happening on the way up. You might have said, well, you could have prepared that before you got there. I had, but still on the way up, I'm wavering. So I didn't. But I did pray the one thing I knew might be possible. I knew that Michael Cassidy had a voice. And so I prayed not that Budalese would come into the elections and make the elections really possible, but that Michael Cassidy might have a voice to speak into this time that might change how it was. Tuesday morning I arrive at my office that by then was actually the Lucan Youth Centre. And when I arrived in my office, I was a youth worker, I'll not tell my boss at the time what time I might have arrived, um, and I feel frightened to tell her what happened next. As I arrived at my office, David Baldock, who was the centre manager at the time, throws me my pool cue. Well, that's just the liturgical way we start at work in the morning. And as I go to break, he says... I see Budalese's in for the elections. I didn't break. I looked up at him. I said, what did you say? He said, I see Budalese and Carter. They're in. And I went, and I didn't have the faith to pray for it. Miracle was the headline in many South African papers that week. Miracle. And here, the Balamina Presbyterian didn't have the faith to pray for it. He didn't have the hope. Now, 
side angle. What happened in that story? Well, I read it on the internet yesterday just to check. Michael Cassidy, you remember him in my prayer? Michael Cassidy holds a rally on the day that I'm praying. Maybe even at the same time if you take the the hour difference or whatever else. And during that prayer time, Buddha Lazy's converted, maybe not to Christian faith, but to go into the election. So maybe God just gave me enough faith to pray for enough to have some sort of prayerful part of the changing of history. But I didn't have enough hope. Which is a com- completely contrary to what I discovered in South Africa after that. Every time you go onto Robben Island and meet these prisoners who were released in the moments or years or months leading up and beyond this, as, as, as you meet with them on Robben Island, they were full of hope. In the hopelessness of the situation that they were in, as prisoners without much of the outside world getting in to help them, in the kind of conditions that they worked in for many years, even though those improved, certainly over the uh, number of years that they were there, they always had hope. Always had hope that something was going to change. And as I've told you before, one of them kept saying, we were getting ready for freedom before freedom came. They knew it was coming. They didn't hope it was coming. They knew something was going to change and they were getting ready for it even before it came. But my lack of hope. Revelation is about hope. This is pretty serious stuff in chapter 19. I could have read any particular chapter, but I went back to this for a few different reasons. Revelation is a book that's at the back of the Bible, and what it's basically doing is it's invigorating our hope with a robust foundation of something to hope in. In order to hope for something, you've got to have something to hope in before you can hope for. Why did I look across at Boyd just at that moment? Manchester United hope in 19 titles for their 20th. And we, on the other side of the city, lack hope because it's been 43 years. Might just be me, because as I keep telling you, my other team, Hibs, it's 110 years since they won the cup. But if you have nothing to hope in, if you have nothing around you to hope in, if you have no tradition or memory or theology or story to hope in, it's very difficult to hope for. So revelation, this is not a book of prophecies to get us going on numbers and names and who might be who and what might be what. We've learned that, have we not, down through the years. I was reading somebody yesterday, and I can't remember who it was now, but it's great. They said that all the monsters that John saw in his vision in Patmos had nothing on the monsters of the commentators who would write about it down through the centuries after. And I thought, is that not so true? When I was 19 or 20, I used to get prophet today. 
And I used to go through it and it would tell me who the Antichrist was. Every week was a different one. But it told me who they were and if you read Revelation you would get it. Some of us are, you know, the Hal Lindsey generation. And if you look at that era, if you look at the 10 years of the 80s um, after Hal Lindsey, so much was influenced by this man who took Revelation and Daniel and had China coming out there and Russia coming up there and all meeting in this wee place called Armageddon halfway through and I was taking it all in. And so was Charles Manson. Do you know the mass murderer, Charles Manson? He was taking it all in. In 1968, he read Romans, or Revelation 9. And it says there in Revelation 9 and verse 8, Their hair was like woman's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was the thundering of mighty horses and chariots rushing into battle. And immediately he got it, which is so right, isn't it? It's right there in Revelation 9 verses 8 and 9. It's the Beatles. Not only have they hair like like woman. Not only have they teeth all over the magazines like, like lions. Breastplates like iron, like the guitars. But what were they called? Locusts. Well, they just got that slightly wrong. Locusts, beetles, same sort of thing. And from these two verses, Charles Manson went on his murderous spree because he got Revelation 19 into the Beatles' White Album, Revolution 19, and he read things in the Beatles' White Album that are even more fictitious than what he was reading in Revelations 9, and he went in a murder spree because God told him to because of the way he read Revelation at the end of the Bible. The monsters that John saw in the vision are worse. Uh, the commentators are worse. There was a great moment, I think it was 1981, when they had got it down by numbering things that President Sadat of Egypt was the Antichrist. The book came out on the Monday, I think he was shot on the Tuesday. Shame. Had to withdraw them all. Couldn't be him. That was the kind of world we lived in for a long time. And the kind of world that my friends in America still live in as a result of that left behind series that needs desperately left behind. This is a prophecy in that it's God unveiling. It's not an apocalypse like Apocalypse Now, a Hollywood movie. This is an unveiling by God to John of who Jesus is and who Jesus will be and how we can see hope in the future that might respond to here. But the bottom, of, the bottom line in this book is that it's not prophetic, it's pastoral. It's a pastoral book. It's a book for the people of the day who were struggling incredibly in the circumstances they were in. I thought it was amazing, and I never ceased to be amazed at the choices of worship and the preacher and the seeming coincidence or luck or Calvinist predestination of what is sung on Sunday mornings before or after I speak. That last new song, the beauty of your peace. I had no idea they were saying that. It's new to us. But I'm watching the words and I'm going, this is a pastoral song on a day that we're trying to look at the pastoral center of Revelations 9. It's a worship song and this book has got a lot of worship in it, including Revelations 19 that we've just read. This fits amazingly well. What God was trying to tell the people was that there was going to be a place where souls wouldn't strain and stress and that there would be a beauty of shalom and peace and justice 
and love reigning that it already was and it was coming towards us. A pastoral book. A book that speaks into 96 AD when Domitian was demanding that Christians and everybody else bowed down to the emperor. When we looked at in Colossians, if you can remember back to Colossians, who am I to have the kind of ego to think you remember that I even did Colossians? But if we did think back to the whole series in Colossians remix, we were thinking about an empire where the coinage, where the statues, where the inscriptions were all a religious oppression on believers because you worshipped Caesar. Caesar was the firstborn among the dead. Caesar was the first over everything. Caesar, everything held together in Caesar. This was the bombardment of stimuli that New Testament believers would be getting endlessly. And so not only the book of Revelation, but particularly the book of Revelation, but those verses in Ephesians 1 where it talks about Jesus seated over all the powers and authorities for the church. And Colossians chapter 1, which we thought about then, where he is seated again, ruling over all. These are verses and worship songs that are pastorally there for the people of God to think alternatively than how things are, to think of how things are going to be, could be, and can be. Because if we get that alternative imagination, if we get a glimpse of not only who Jesus was at the start of this New Testament readings that we did, but if we get to where that Jesus is at the end of these New Testament readings that we are, then suddenly we can imagine another place. Another place where Jesus is Lord, where there is justice in the streets, where there is love between people, where there is a shalom kind of peace. And when we see the hopefulness of that, it can change who we are today. It's not about waiting in the by and by for some justice in the next world. It's an alternative imagining and revelation for the people of that day to grasp this pastoral letter so that they would be invigorated to pray and to worship in ways that see the kingdom coming but already here. This is something to believe in, to have hope in, so that we can hope for. Interestingly, as I prepared this sermon, um, I was drawn back to South Africa yet again. It's one of those I remember mentioning a number of weeks ago where it's like Daniel Lanwa, the musician, talks about how um, art is sort of all these splinters of steel splinters and they're racing around the room and you're trying to take hold of something that comes together and you're watching it come together and sometimes you have a say in it and sometimes you just, it's there. And by the end of this, I realized the Budalese story was important. The getting ready for freedom before freedom came story was important. And then I was taken back to a Jim Wallace quote that I remembered was again in South Africa. Again at the same time. Jim Wallace, sojourners, um, political activist, Christian uh, in the United States, spent a lot of time in South Africa during apartheid and coming up to the end of apartheid. And he found himself a few weeks later at the inauguration of the president, the new president Mandela. 
And he talks in Soul of Politics, just waxes lyrical about the emotion of that day with Desmond Tutu and watching Nelson Mandela, listening to that speech. I thought it was emotional watching it in Janice's house at the time in Hollywood, but it must have been amazing to have been at least part of that, like Jim Wallace, and then being with the people who were finding their freedom. And he talks about the partying that went on and all kinds of other stuff. And no doubt Desmond had a few wee dances, uh, as he even has had here in Fitzroy over the years. But he talks in that book, Wallace, about this, and he says, hope for these people, hope for all of us is this. Hope is believing in spite of the evidence and watching the evidence change. Wow. Hope is believing in spite of the evidence and watching the evidence change. That expresses those prisoners in Robben Island for me. They believed in spite of the evidence. They didn't even have a vote. Nobody was getting a vote. In spite of the evidence, they believed. They had hope. And then they watched and were part of the evidence changing. God says to us that we need, if we're going to live any kind of invigorated discipleship, and this book's about discipleship too, because at the bottom line, the Bible, I guess, is about one thing. It's about idolatry, which in itself is the the faithlessness we've had to God. We've not been faithful. We went through that in Hosea, did we not? We were prostitutes. Did we read Revelation 19 well today? The prostitute implodes. That which drew us away from the identity of our souls, which is in connection with God, that which distracted us, that which set up idols that we would go and worship instead of God is finished. And suddenly there's a place where we're faithful to God again in our worship, in our living. And as I was thinking about it this week, I was thinking, is it going to be a little monastery where we're all sitting there reading our Bibles and getting the answers to the questions in Revelation 19 that we didn't quite get? And we're sitting there thinking, this is great. I'm glad this is all over and I understand all the theology. And we maybe now and again come together and sing a worship song or maybe we sing worship songs. Is it going to be like, do you know, that's not the picture we get in Revelation. Chapter 21 is a city coming down out of heaven. It's about a city, the same as the city we live in here. It's a city where there's differences in here because there's justice, shalom, and love. And maybe sometimes we're too introverted in our spirituality where we're trying to say now if I read my Bible and if I pray better it'll see me through this injustice that's going on in my life or it'll see me through the injustices that I see around me it'll maybe help me if I get this prayer and Bible study sort out again Northern Ireland explain to them that you're not saying on that that they don't read their Bible or pray Steve just tell them that um, but that we've got that into such a an introverted way that we don't see that Actually, if the kingdom came and there was justice and there was shalom and there was peace, then we wouldn't be messed up. Then we could live freely. Then we would be able to live more freely. And so my thinking is, as we come to this book of Revelation The hope that we have in this alternative imagining, 
let's pray like I should have. Let's pray for political change. Let's pray for justice. Let's pray for shalom. Because if we get the justice and the shalom, the little self-indulgent things I'm praying for would be gone. And not only would my little self-indulgent things be gone, but so would yours. And yours. And the people of Africa's. And the people of Patagonia's. And the people of India's. And the people of Belfast's. Revelation gives us something to believe in and hope in and therefore we can hope for. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How hopeful are you? How hopeful are we? How big are our prayers? Are you going to commit to this? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I could take that. I could take that, Lord. Make me part of bringing it in. Let us pray. (coughs) Believing in spite of the evidence, Lord. There's so much evidence around us that would stop us believing. As we're going to think about next week, Lord, in our radio service, there are so many moments that we're stuck in because the evidence doesn't look good. Lord, give us a hope out of this revelation of Jesus, a hope that helps us to believe in spite of the evidence, knowing that the evidence will change. Lord, help us to believe that if we got your will and your kingdom, then those things that stress us, those things that strain us, they'd be gone. So let's pray for the bigger things. Let's work, Lord, for the bigger things. We commit ourselves to you. And we hope for these things because we believe in the person of Jesus that this book reveals. Give us the courage that John hoped he was given the people of his day to stand up against the times, to go against the flow, to bring your will on earth as it is in heaven. Take us, Lord, and use us for such a vision, for such a hope, and for such a belief. In Jesus' name, amen.